you tonight. Thanks for coming out and uh, trust you're having a good week. I'm having a really busy week as we are in process of, you know, processing things as far as uh, we had the inspection today. And so all these inspectors showed up. Must have been 20 of them. I don't know. But anyway, so, you know, you kind of have a little bit of a negotiation goes on after you've agreed to buy it, too, as far as who's going to fix what needs to be fixed here. So you might continue to pray for us, but been a good day, and uh, let's uh, go ahead and look to the Lord in a word of prayer, and we'll pick up on our study. If you just uh, came, we are starting on page 86 tonight. We're right midstream, but uh, we'll pick it up there. Let's ask the Lord to bless. Lord, again, we thank you for your presence here tonight, and uh, thank you for all the teachers, the classes, the students. Uh, thank you for all that are able to come out and study the Word together. Uh, your Word is powerful, and we pray that you would use it in our lives t- tonight. Help me to teach accurately and clearly in a way that brings glory to you and edifies your people. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we have noticed uh, Colossians, the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ, uh, a book that all cultists hate, right? You really understand Colossians chapter 1. I don't know how you get away from the deity of Jesus Christ and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. He really is all we need for all of our spiritual problems. He's the full answer. He's not part of the answer. He's the full answer. And so that's uh, what we find in the book of Colossians. Let's pick it up. Chapter uh, 3, verse 17, top of page 86 here. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, do it all. Uh, for Jesus. Whatever you do in word or in deed, here we have a summary statement of of what is to characterize the new man. Everything we say and do should be done in the name of the Lord Jesus as representing him. Just think, everything you do, you're representing Jesus Christ. I'm doing this as as Jesus, for Jesus, for his glory, for his sake. That's how we are to live. The totality of our life is to be governed by who Jesus is. Uh, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. His name represents who he is, and he is specifically stated here to be the Lord Jesus. Lord means master. Uh, Jesus means God's savior. All we do and say should be done in harmony with the Lordship of Christ. Uh, Skip that next paragraph. God hasn't given us a rule book, as we find in the Old Testament. This is very important as far as how should we then live? What's the code we're under? Well, you could kind of boil it down to Jesus. We're under the code of Jesus, in a sense. Uh, we're not under the law, but he has given us Christ. Christ is our rule. We're to fulfill the law of Christ, which is the law of love. Uh, he is our standard, and we are, uh, we are to live by. Okay, come down uh, under the uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 10, 13 reference. Uh, skip that first sentence there. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. Jesus is our all, therefore we are to do all in his name, accompanied with thanks to God the Father through him. Note the threefold emphasis on thanksgiving in verses 15, 16, and 17. Strong emphasis on on giving thanks. We're to be a thankful people. Uh, I've often told this story about it was Thanksgiving season, and uh, my daughter had a friend, and and uh, I knew the father, and we met in a store, and I knew he was kind of living with another woman and was getting a divorce. And so uh, he asked me how I was doing, and I said, I'm thankful. And he just looked at me. <laughs> how you doing? <laughs> anyway, it's convicting, I think. Uh, we should be thankful. 
Uh, note the middle of that paragraph. Verse 16 says, The word of Christ is to saturate our lives, resulting in overflowing joy, singing with gratitude. Thus, our worship is to be marked by an attitude of gratitude. And in verse 17, Paul's summary statement regarding all we say and do in the name of the Lord shows that everything is to be permeated with thanksgiving. Uh, it says something about our constant attitude that we are to have as we go through life. Uh, one of thanksgiving. In fact, I was meeting with our real estate agent down there. and you know, I've been having Bible study with him. He said this one gal came in so sour. Uh, Kurt, what did he say? He says, I think she needs Christ or something. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe so. Anyway, our whole attitude should be permeated with thanksgiving. The emphasis on doing all in the name of the Lord launches Paul into the practice of uh, the new man in connection to the relationships of life, starting with the home life and family relationships. A truly changed life shows up first and foremost in the home. You know, someone has said, if, if, it does, if, if your family doesn't know that you know Christ, and if it doesn't show, even your dog should know it. <laughs> it should affect the whole of your life. Bottom of the page here, Paul says that we should live consistently in light of who we are, starting in the home. If you can't live consistently with the new man on display in the home, then you probably are not able to do elsewhere either. Page 87. <clears throat> Second paragraph there. Christianity is not just personal. It is that. But it's more than that. It's also relational. For too long, in many evangelical circles, we have emphasized having a personal relationship with the Lord and left it there. Yes, it starts there. But immediately when you come to Christ... Uh, you then found yourself in the body of Christ. You cannot separate being in Christ and being in the body of Christ. True Christianity is meant to be lived out in the context of other people. It starts in the home, extends to the church, and then to society at large. How we relate to one another in the home is huge in terms of the reputation of the gospel. So note, verse 18. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. The word submit basically means to... Submit. That's basically what it means. Uh, second paragraph, there are often loud cries of protest over this word submit. Uh, in fact, I've, I've had couples tell me, nope, uh, my, our wedding ceremonies, ceremony, we're not going to use that word. Well, it's a fine Bible word. By the way, uh, yeah, they might not want me to do that marriage, but anyway. But uh, in reality, this often is a loud cry of rebellion against God himself, who has ordained it. Uh, next uh, sentence there. Really, this is not an isolated teaching. We find it, and I give the references there. The great issue here is that of authority. That is God's authority. Since the Lord is our head, we need to align ourselves with his instruction. In each of the relationships that Paul mentions here in context, uh, wife and husband, children and parents, slaves and masters, in each case, the greater issue is the authority of God underlying the relationship. So that becomes the issue. The word submit is actually a military word. It means to arrange oneself under another, as in the sense of arranging under rank. Uh, note uh, under the Homer Kent quote, husband and wife have equal value, but they do have differing roles as ordained by God. God has placed a special responsibility on the husband in making him the leader, the head. Headship does not have anything to do with culture. According to 1 Timothy 2.13, it is based on God's created order. God, from the very start, designed it this way. Now, we will talk about abuse. There's abuse of that role sometimes. But uh, let's go to page 88. Note a couple of uh, qualifiers here. <clears throat> Number one, 
The words uh, submit denotes that this is a voluntary thing. Nowhere is the husband told to force his wife to submit. Uh, Paul's directing his, what the Lord has to say to the wife. Uh, rather, she is instructed by God to voluntarily do so. Second, uh, number two there, submission to her husband does not mean that she follows him into sin. Uh, in 1 Peter 2.13 and Romans 13, we are told to submit to everything the government tells us to do, uh, the governing authorities. Yet in Acts 4.19 and 5.29, we find the principle that we ought to obey God rather than man. That principle applies to all human relationships, including the marriage relationship. Calling Jesus Lord means that he is your supreme authority overall. If there's a conflict between, conflict between Christ's authority and the husband's authority, then yielding to Christ is the proper thing to do. And uh, <clears throat> by way of uh, illustration, I, I talk about Abigail is uh, commended for her wisdom in not following her husband into sin. She, she was a very wise woman on that occasion. Um, you know, Sapphira also died because she followed her husband into sin. She, she should have said, no, I can't go along with that. So we note the, the guidelines here. Note that she is to submit as is fitting in the Lord. In other words, she is to do this because it is the proper thing to do before God. It is in keeping with God's design and his intention. All right, uh, time for the husbands, who really have the, the taller order, I think, in some ways. Uh, Colossians 3.19, husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Wives are told to submit, husbands are told to love. The word love is the strong word for love in the New Testament. It's the word agape. Uh, it means to seek the other person's highest good. It is the, not the love of passion, but of commitment. It is love based on choice and is of the will. It is characterized by sacrificial giving. And uh, skip uh, the reference there in 1 Corinthians right under that. Men, uh, love your wife like this. This is what the new man is to look like in the marriage relationship. And then let's jump down to the bold and do not be bitter toward them. <clears throat> bitter is the opposite of sweet. In other words, uh, you are not to have a sour or bitter spirit toward them. You're not to be biting sharp or harsh. Uh, bottom of the page, loving our wives means that instead of being short with them, we seek to be sensitive and understanding. Okay, page 89. Right under the first paragraph there, ever since the fall, there has been tension between the genders. Uh, really, that's where the problem started. Didn't really have a problem, I don't think, before the fall. But in Genesis 3.16, God told us it would be this way. Uh, we read there, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow uh, and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Let's talk about that for just a moment here. <clears throat> the meaning of your desire shall be for your husband is that the woman's tendency would now be to have the wrongful desire to rule her husband. Her inclination would be to resist his headship authority. This was directly a result of the fall and contrary to God's created order. And uh, we see the very same language in reference to Cain, where God says, sin's desire is to rule over you, but uh, you should rule over it. And so uh, same construction there in chapter 4, verse 7. Okay, next uh, sentence. Yes, the man would rule over her, but the tendency for the man is either to be passive, as seen in Adam heeding his wife's voice, or to be selfish and harsh in his leadership role. Uh, what is the answer to these tensions resulting from the fall as seen in Genesis 3.16? The answer is the word-filled life of Colossians 3 and the parallel spirit-filled life as found in Ephesians 5. When the spirit through the word is controlling our marriages, then the wife will be submitting properly and the husband will be loving properly. And that's a beautiful thing. 
Um, we still struggle. We still have the flesh. We do have uh, tension points, but uh, this is what is God's design. The Spirit puts his finger right on the very areas we are weak in. Uh, the flesh in the woman tends to resist her husband's leadership. The flesh in the husband tends to not be loving and gravitate towards bitterness. But when the new man is put on and we operate according to who we have become in Christ, then the wife submits and the husband loves. Uh, by the way, this is not natural. It's, it's not normal in a sense. Uh, to consistently live this way, I think is supernatural. requires the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, next paragraph, everyone wants to talk about rights, but God puts the emphasis on responsibilities in keeping with where he has sovereignly placed us in our station in life. So uh, <clears throat> just a little overview here. Of course, Christ is overall, and the husband is uh, the head of the home under Christ, uh, you know, and then the wife is under her husband's uh, umbrella, so to speak. And of course, uh, you know, we have the, the different emphasis of responsibility there in the scripture. But that's kind of the, the uh, order as it's emphasized in the scriptures. And of course, uh, husband and wife are heirs together of the grace of life. It is a partnership and uh, it's certainly not a dictatorship. It's a loving relationship. That's the whole <laughs> emphasis here. All right, Colossians 3.20. Children, children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. The word children is general, referring to children who are minors and are still under the authority of their parents. At every stage of life, children are to honor their parents. But here the specific instruction is to obey your parents, which implies they're still minors under the parents' roof. Page 90. The word obey means to listen with the idea of responding positively. Uh, let's jump down under the uh, Proverbs 20 reference. Uh, what a great testimony when children consistently seek to obey their parents in all things. That is a great proof of regeneration. For a child, that is a key way that they put on the new man in the context of family life. By the way, this is uh, parallel to the spirit-filled life, the word-filled life in Colossians uh, 3 and the spirit-filled life in Ephesians 5. And uh, this would indicate that certainly children can be believers uh, and be filled with the Spirit and filled with the Word, controlled by the Word as well. Uh, so note uh, the next uh, paragraph there. This matter of children obeying parents is a big deal in the Bible. It's the first commandment in, in the second table of the law, etc. Uh, skip uh, that next uh, sentence. Uh, Romans one thirty lists disobedient to parents as one of the traits that defines a society given over to a debased mind. Next uh, paragraph, in 2 Timothy 3, 2, Paul lists disobedient to parents as one of the sins that will define the last days. Of course, it's always been around, but it will mark the last days for society in a very pronounced way. And I think we live there. As, I mean, you, we see this happening all over the place, what's going on. Uh, Warren Wearsby says, The child who does not learn to obey his parents is not likely to grow up obeying any authority. He will defy his teachers, police, employees, employers. Uh, and anyone else who tries to exercise authority over him. The breakdown in authority in our society reflects the breakdown in authority of, in the home. For the most part, children do not create problems, they reveal them. Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate what he's saying there. What is the problem in our society? Well, one of the essential problems is the breakdown of the home. There is no authority. There is no obedience. Kids run wild. Our society is out of control. The state makes all kinds of laws, but they can't raise kids. God gave this responsibility to parents. When the principle of discipline is surrendered, the inevitable result will be out of control. Kids just read Proverbs. All right, page 91. 
He continues here, verse 21, fathers do not provoke your children uh, lest they become discouraged. Uh, the Greek word translated fathers here normally does mean fathers. However, on occasion, it can refer to both parents. Uh, next sentence there. I think this, there is application to both parents, but especially in view is the father whom the scriptures denote as the main disciplinarian. Uh, come down the middle of the page there. Um, second paragraph under the Hebrews quote. The expectation is that responsible fathers will discipline their children in a proper manner. However, there's also a warning to fathers to not provoke their children. The word provoke means to irritate, stir up, harass, or agitate. Uh, This is when a father misuses his authoritative role. He pushes the child in a way that is unhealthy. He may be too harsh. He may be too critical of a child or make unreasonable demands. He may humiliate a child. Uh, There may be rules, but a lack of love. The concern is that the child may become discouraged. Uh, Next paragraph, children are all different, and a wise father will balance discipline with uh, loving understanding of a child's unique personality and and maturity level. He will discern between open defiance and childish irresponsibility. Uh, He will balance negative disciplinary correction with positive encouragement. And all these rules go out the window when it comes to grandparenting, right? (laughs) I hope so. Anyway, page 92. One thing about it, grandparents are not the parents. I'll tell you that. Amen. Yeah, amen. I got an amen here. It's, it's true. There's just a difference there. You know, you kind of get into that role a little bit when the parents are not around, but uh, still not the parent. All right, page 92 and uh, third paragraph down. Children need encouragement and praise as well as discipline. Someone as well said rules without relationship leads to rebellion. That's a pretty good rule of thumb. Uh, This verse is emphasizing that the father must not just throw his weight around, but must also build a relationship with the child that fosters encouragement with the child. And um, that is so important uh, that you have that relationship with them. All right, uh, come down about uh, uh, two-thirds of the way down the page. So at the end of the day, children make their own choices. We can influence them, discipline them, love them, encourage them, but they must receive Christ for themselves. Uh, No one can do it for them. God has no grandchildren. When I sent my kids off to college, I always told them, now we will see what you're really made of, uh, which would be reflected in their life choices uh, made independent of the parents. I think that's really kind of, it's one thing to kind of be in a Christian home, Christian culture, and you you know know, what you can get away with and what you can't. But when you're kind of off totally by your own, what's your convictions then? What's your guide? When when you make your own decisions, you find out what you're really about. Under the uh, Proverbs 22.6 reference, Proverbs 22.6 is a wisdom principle, but not a promise. You know, it says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. Read the book of Proverbs through, and you will find a parent pleading with his child to go in the way of wisdom. It's no guarantee that he will automatically do it, we pray, we counsel, we plead, we, we pray, and then we pray some more, right? That's what we do. And we never quit praying for our kids. And one thing about our kids, they're always going to be our kids, right? Uh, yeah, they are. And uh, you love them unconditionally. Uh, a lot of things burden the, the heart and soul of a parent. Uh, bottom of the page. I have taught for years that I believe that the man sets the tone for the home, either for ill or for good. The husband, the father sets the tone. He's the primary one. He is the head of the home. 93, page 93. Everything else falls in line with the tone that he sets. The father must be balanced. Balanced. And I think that's so key. Balanced. 
He is the head of the home, and yet he must be loving and understanding towards his wife. He is the chief disciplinarian of the children, yet must not overdo it. He must also be an encourager. Uh, Where there is unbalanced leadership in the home, the whole family will suffer, and their testimony for the Lord will suffer. How does the new man look in the word-filled home where each member strives uh, to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus? Well, the wife submits to the husband. The husband loves his wife. The children obey their parents. And the father sets a balanced tone in his leadership style. And there you have the perfect tone. (laughs) Right? And uh, everyone at Southview is pretty much in line here, pretty sure. All the time. (laughs) It did. Cain, not so much. But yeah. And and, uh, Jacob... What about Esau? You know, we've got the same parents, same home. You know, pe- kids do make their own choices, ultimately. Christ said, I'm coming to bring division, you know, not just peace. There will be a, a child against the parent, parent against the There will be those times, too. All right, Colossians 3.22. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. You know, bond servants is literally slaves here. This seems like some really tough medicine for slaves. Uh, as I say, bond service, literally slaves. We realize about 50% of the people, that is approximately 60 million people in the Roman Empire, were slaves. It was a way of life for half the population. Now, some have criticized the New Testament because it does not outright condemn slavery and call for its overthrow. And that's how come you can even have some of the early founders in America kind of appealing to the Scripture. It's okay, Right? You know, now our, our national sin of slavery, you know, that the whole nation would agree that was wrong. But what about this? Uh, it doesn't come right out and condemn it. But note, neither does it condone it or advocate it. So it doesn't do that either. It's not like the Bible is saying, uh, you know, well, let's push for this. No. Instead, it regulates it. It deals with how Christians should operate in a fixed context already in place. And I think as you look at the big picture from a a godly wisdom perspective, you can see the wisdom here. Let let me explain it to you. You see, Christianity is first and foremost concerned about eternity. Yes, this life matters, but as believers, we need to realize we are simply strangers and pilgrims merely passing through this life. Part of our testimony is that there is a greater concern than this life. Uh, The greatest concern the church has is not social rights or political issues, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. For us, it's not ultimately about us, but rather about Jesus Christ. It's not merely about time, but about eternity. Uh, The church is not a social or activist movement. Some need to be reminded of that. Uh, The church does not battle according to the flesh. Rather, its power is in the spiritual realities and change lives that impact society. Worldly thinking uh, people don't get this. Here's a little secret about the gospel. Wherever it goes, it quietly transforms from the inside out. There's the strategy. There's the strategy. Paul's counsel to the slaves and Christian masters actually served to undermine slavery from within. The very principles he's advocating, such as equality in Christ, ultimately did, in fact, undermine the institution of slavery. Everywhere the gospel went, it eventually had this impact on society. So you see, the strategy was kind of from an inside out, not like we're going to take the bull by the horns here in terms of outward. It was an inside out strategy. On the other hand, if Paul had advocated a full frontal attack on slavery, the new movement would have been smashed in short order by the Roman government. So you can see the wisdom here. All right, page 94. 
Many people, uh, second paragraph there, many people, even Christians, do not recognize that this same principle applies today. The church is not called to social or political activism. Uh, Instead, we are called to preach the gospel. And wherever the gospel goes, it brings about social changes that would otherwise never be possible. That's not to say we're not for, you know, good reforms, of course, you know. But uh, what's the mission of the church? That's what I'm really driving at. Uh, Should I get up here on Sunday morning and preach uh, social justice? Uh, Should I get involved in political activism this way or that? That's not what my calling is. I preach the gospel. I share the truth of the scriptures, which applies to everybody. You know, no matter whatever political stripe people happen to be, God's got a message uh, for them. All right, uh, skip that next paragraph. So Paul does not deal with the wrongs of the system, but instead he focuses on what the new man should look like, serving his Lord in the context presented him. There's the idea. Under the Homer Kent quote, it's amazing how much New Testament instruction is given to the slaves regarding how they should respond to their situation and how they should live. Proportionally, Paul has more to say to slaves than he does to husbands, wives, children, or fathers. Think about that. has a lot to say to them. Uh, Under the uh, William MacDonald quote, Often in life we cannot do much of anything about our lot in life. And there will be situations like that. What can you do about it? This happens to be your lot in life. What can you do about it? So how should we respond? Should we be bitter? Should we rise up in rebellion? Uh, This is how the world responds. Should we fight against our lot with all our might? No. We need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and live for him in light of eternity. Now, of course, Paul points out that if a slave could properly change his status, then go for it. Right? Uh, 1 Corinthians 7.21 Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can't be made free, rather use it. If you can better your lot, okay, fine. But otherwise, don't become a revolutionary, rebelling against the whole society here. Okay, page 95. <clears throat> he says to obey in, uh, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. I wonder if you were a slave reading this, you'd say, man, what is this? He's asking me to do. Obey the master in all things. Realize that a slave did not really have options. Slaves in the Roman Empire were basically just considered property that someone owned. So that's really kind of demeaning. Uh, Second paragraph, but note Paul says their masters are only masters according to the flesh. As believers, their spiritual master was God alone. Next paragraph, the same word obey used with children in reference to their parents is used here in reference to slaves and their masters. Just as in the case of children, the only exception would be if the master commanded them to disobey God. As in all relationships, God is always the supreme authority. We must always yield to him. He takes precedence over all. And then uh, note that bold there, not with eye service as men pleasers. Uh, They are not merely to look like they are obedient when the boss was watching. Uh, They are not to merely try and impress when being watched in the bold, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. Here we get, we get the God factor in, in the background. The word sincerity literally means without a fold and is sometimes translated as singleness of heart. The idea then is to be without a fold in your heart so that you are not hiding false motives. It is to be transparent and honest instead of deceitful and hypocritical. Although spoken to slaves and masters, most all commentators agree that the principles in view here largely apply to employees and employers today. Paul is saying be a good employee uh, whether you're being watched or not. Uh, It's not a good testimony if you're just kind of cheating on the clock 
when the boss isn't watching. Oh man, I'm working hard. He's watching. Pick it up. <laughs> no, that's not how we should function. Uh, next paragraph. But note what drives this kind of commendable behavior is the fear of God. The motivation for this kind of selfless service has God in view. Next paragraph. What makes the difference here is the heart. In the heart, we must seek to obey our earthly masters because we realize this is what our heavenly master asks us to do. And then verse 23. And whatever you do, whatever you do, kind of a catch-all statement here. Do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Ultimately, this is who you're serving. Page 96. The exhortation here is sweeping. There's no exceptions. There will be unpleasant tasks. There, there may be things they really don't want to do. But Paul says, whatever you do, do it heartily. Do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. You know, don't have a, a sour, dour attitude as you're going about it. No, do it heartily as to the Lord as if you're doing it for Jesus. As to the Lord and not to men. Skip that next sentence. Heartily means from out of the soul. Paul says, put your heart and soul into whatever you're doing for the boss. Should we have a moment of conviction? Uh, do it like you're doing it for Jesus. That is the key. Because in fact, you are serving Jesus in this role that he has sovereignly placed you in. So two key definitions, authority, the right to expect obedience and submission to commands or direction. Uh, submission, acknowledging one's place in a, in a chain of command to be ranked under another. Vine's Dictionary, subject, uh, subjection, uh, submit, uh, primarily a military term uh, to rank under, denotes to put in subjection to subject. Okay, uh, it is uh, not always possible to change our job, but we can change our attitude, right? Uh, we need to see our job as a calling where God has sovereignly placed us to serve him. We need to do our job heartily as to the Lord himself. Okay, let's jump down. Uh, why don't you skip those next three paragraphs? Uh, there is another important principle here. All work is sacred. All work is sacred. Uh, you say, well, if I was doing what you were doing, Pastor, I'd really get into it. Uh, but since I'm just working down here at McDonald's, you know I don't have to be all that committed. Uh, next paragraph. You see... The key to Christian living is thinking properly. Christians are to think differently than the world. For us, everything revolves around Jesus and eternity. Everything matters because we are serving Jesus in everything we do. Makes all the difference. You show up serving Jesus. Page 97, Colossians 3.24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. This is the great motivator. You're serving the Lord. And what's he going to do? He's going to reward faithful service. The boss just thinks you're serving him. You're actually serving Jesus above him. Knowing, you know this, slaves. Knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ. That's who you're serving. So Paul appeals to what these believing slaves already know. They know that ultimately the reward of their eternal inheritance is going to be from the Lord. As slaves, they had no earthly inheritance, by the way, right? What are you going to leave your kids? Well, well, nothing. I'm just a slave who owns nothing. In fact, I'm just property myself. But there is an inheritance that they're going to receive from the Lord. Uh, skip uh, the next uh, paragraph. In effect, what Paul encourages is an eternal perspective that keeps everything in the right focus. If a slave only focused on his lot in the here and now, that would be a downer. But if he focuses on eternity and the rewards to come for serving Christ... That will be a great motivation in the here and now. 
Under the uh, McDonald quote, a motto often hung over the kitchen sink is divine service held here three times daily. <laughs> like that. Do it as unto Jesus. Whatever you're doing. You know, uh, anyway. Yeah. Let's continue. Verse 25. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done. And there is no partiality. So, wow. Kind of a, a, all interjected a little warning in here. Yeah, there's a reward for faithful service. But what if you're not? Well, he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done. There's no partiality. Now, there is some debate here as to whether this verse continues to speak to the slaves or whether it is now speaking to the masters, as seen in, in the next verse in one. However, most agree that the flow of the thought here continues to speak to the slaves. However, in the parallel passage of Ephesians 6, 9, it is the master who is reminded that there is no partiality with God. So in reality, I think this principle applies both ways. Okay, top of page uh, 98, third paragraph. The issue in context relates to reward. As believers, Christ paid our sin debt. The issue for us as believers on Judgment Day is not punishment for sin. When Jesus died, what did he say? It is finished. We're not going to answer for sin. There's no more punishment to be exacted. That's that's not what we're talking about as far as the believer's judgment. Rather, now uh, we will be rewarded in accordance with how we serve Christ here on earth. In this context, being repaid for wrongdoing relates to loss of reward. We can't lose our reward. And we find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, for some, it's all going to go up in smoke. You know, it's like, oh man, it's my... It's kind of examined by fire. It just it, what's going to last is that which is gold and silver, precious metal. That which is really a quality service that the Lord approves of. So uh, note under the uh, the First Corinthians three fifteen uh, reference there. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Yet so as through fire. This is the believer's judgment. Uh, and note what's being examined: the work, the quality of your service is being examined. And, and you can lose your reward, suffer loss in that sense. But notice, he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. It's like a person who loses everything in the fire, the house and all of his possessions, but he himself escapes with his bare life. That's what it will be like on Judgment Day for the person who loses, doesn't have a reward. Okay, uh, let's come down to the bottom of the page, Colossians 4.1. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So now he's talking to the masters, those that own the slaves. Page 99, top of the page. In effect, Paul says to the masters that they should treat their slaves right. Don't take advantage of them. Don't mistreat them. God's watching. And just remember, he's your master. Again, we know Paul has in view a Christian household in which both slaves and masters are pictured as being believers. As Paul said, knowing to the slaves in verse 24 who knew that ultimately their reward was with the Lord. So now he also says, knowing to the masters who also realize that they too have a master in heaven to whom they are accountable. Uh, note the footnote there. Uh, the New Testament is clear that all believers are slaves of Christ. All believers are accountable to Christ as their master. As our master, Christ owns us, right? He bought us. We do belong to him. And uh, how did he buy us? Well, 1 Corinthians six nineteen through 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own. You're not your own. Uh, how is that? You were bought at a price. 
What was that price? Well, the blood of Jesus. Christ paid for our sin debt, but he purchased us. He redeemed us, bought us out of the slave market of sin. We now belong to him, bought with that precious blood of Christ. Uh, jump down under the reference of Romans 5, 1 there. The Lordship of Christ is a reality for all believers. Believers do not always obey like they should. You can disobey a master, right? We have a master. He's bought us. But we can be disobedient. Uh, you can disobey a master. Uh, and uh, slaves are not always consistent. Uh, but they have all rec- Believers are not always consistent. But they have all recognized the sovereign authority of Christ as personal Lord. The reality of, being, uh, of Christ being the master of all believers is seen here in Colossians 4.1. In that masters know that they too have a master in heaven. You can say, well, some of you that have accepted Christ as Lord, he's your master. But if you haven't accepted him as Lord, he's not your master. No, he is your master. Period. There's no doubt about it. Their, their Lord is in heaven. Paul didn't say, well, now you know you have a Savior in heaven, but he might not be your Lord. No, they knew him as Lord. That is master. If you boil it down, the dominant idea behind all the relationships in view is the lordship of Christ. That's the dominant idea. Note this emphasis. Wives as it is fitting in the Lord. Children well-pleasing to the Lord. Slaves fearing the Lord. As to the Lord. Verse 24. From the Lord you serve the Lord Christ. And then verse 1 to the masters. A master Lord in heaven. Okay, page uh, 100. For the new man, uh, top of the page, for the new man, the reality of Christ as Lord is to be the dominant truth that governs his life. We live in light of his lordship. Our whole life revolves around him. Jesus is master in our relationships at home. Jesus is master in our work relationships. For us, life is about serving our master, Jesus, in every realm. This is the ultimate issue in life. You see, for a slave, life is simple. It revolves around the will of the master and doing the master's pleasure. As believers, Christ is our master, and our whole life in every realm revolves around doing his will and serving his good pleasure. You know, the New Testament is simple in a sense. Under the law, you had how many laws? 613 laws under the Mosaic law. You had to keep them all the time in thought, word, and deed. That was tough. Now we just kind of got one rule. The law of Christ. The law of love. Serving him and doing what he tells us to do. On judgment day, he is going to evaluate how we served him. And that involves how we served our earthly bosses. Or if we are the boss, how we treated our employees. Uh, Middle of the page, the reality of changed lives is to be demonstrated in the relationships of our lives. This is where the rubber meets the road. If a person's life is not changed in terms of the relationships, that is strong evidence they are not changed at all. The family of Christ relationships, one another. The wife-husband relationship, the uh, child-parent relationship, the slave-master-employee-employer, by way of application relationship, the believer-unbeliever relationship, which we will talk about next. Okay, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll be dismissed for our little break time here. Lord, again, we thank you for your word, which uh, instructs us uh, how to live as your people. And uh, Lord, uh, the world definitely is not on the page of Christ's lordship, but we are. Uh, We are, we have accepted you as our Lord and our Savior, and now we are to live accordingly. And you spell out what this means in the home, uh, in the workplace, and and so forth. So, Lord, help us to be consistent. Lord, again, we thank you for the refreshments, for the hands that have prepared it, and bless our time of fellowship now. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay.
find our places as the others kind of filter in. We are on page 100, and we are headed for page 115. So what this means is we're doing a page every two minutes, right? Anyway. Uh, read the whole page? Oh, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> okay, uh, let's pick it up uh, towards the bottom of the page here, page 100, just above the reference there. One of the most challenging things can be our relationships with unbelievers. Uh, we need to reach them, but there's always tension. So how should we approach this? How should we respond? Paul's next emphasis is prayer, and then moves on to our relationships with unbelievers. It's kind of neat how he inserts prayer right here. You understand he's talking about relationships, the relationships of family and life and employer, employee, all that. And he's going to talk about relationships towards unbelievers. And right inserted in the middle here is an emphasis on prayer. Very fitting. Uh, note verse 2 there, Colossians 4.2. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Prayer is simply talking to God. God speaks to us through the word via the ministry of the spirit. And we talk to God in prayer. Uh, page 101, top of the page. This really is a blanket admonition relating to the whole of our lives, relating to all the relationships of our lives. That's the context. We need to handle life with prayer, whether it be body life in the church, home life with the family, workplace relationships, or relating to the lost. All of these relationships should be saturated with prayer. That's the context here of this uh, comment about prayer. Uh, note under the... Uh, under the uh, bold there. I wonder if one reason we have so many conflicts and difficulties is because we don't saturate our lives with enough prayer. After the long section in chapter 3 instructing on how the new man should re relate concerning interpersonal relationships of life, immediately Paul then follows up with this strong exhortation to continue earnestly in prayer. So that is the context. Uh, note, uh, to continue earnestly is the idea of being devoted to prayer. Uh, this is having a committed prayer life. This is not hit and miss praying. Uh, this is not merely saying bedtime prayers or grace before meals. This is making prayer a priority in life. Note, uh, come down to the bold, being vigilant in it. Vigilant is the idea of being awake or watchful. It's the idea of being alert in your prayer life. And then with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is to color our prayer lives. We ought to constantly be saying thank you to God. After all, we have so much for which to be thankful bottom uh, line there. Thanksgiving is a matter of the will, not simply the emotions. God tells us our attitude in all our praying should include the spirit of thanksgiving. Page 102, top of the page. When we are thankful, then we are focused on God and his provision instead of focusing on ourselves. And note the footnote. In this little letter, the theme of thanksgiving is prominent. In 112, we are to be thankful for our spiritual inheritance. In 2.7, thanksgiving is for spiritual growth. 3.15, thanksgiving is for the fellowship of the body. 3.17, thanksgiving is for the opportunity to serve. And here in 4.2, thanksgiving is to saturate our prayer lives. Tremendous emphasis on thanksgiving. Chapter 4, verse 3. Meanwhile, praying also for us, that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. That God would open... To us, a door for the word. Note, note the heart of Paul here. He doesn't request prayer for himself, just for himself. 
uh, per se. He does not ask for prayer that he might be released from prison. He does not give a laundry list of his own personal needs. Rather, his main concern is getting out the word of God. So notice how he's asking to pray. Pray that God would open to us a door for the word. If I got one request, it's just that we'd have an opportunity to share the word. And note the next paragraph. Specifically, he's asked prayer that God would open to us a door. He realizes God who opens the doors. Nobody just walks out into the world and makes gospel ministry happen. We have to have open doors, that is opportunities, and it is God who makes possible those opportunities in response to prayer. So God's the one who opens the doors. And he's asking prayer that God would open a door. We don't just make this happen on our own. Skip the next paragraph. But note further that Paul is asking specific prayer for a door for the word to open. It's not simply enough to make contacts or build friendships or to let your life speak. For Paul, the end goal is to share the word. Very specifically, an open door to share the word. That's what we want to do. We want to communicate the word of God to people. Bottom of the page, the irony here is that Paul in prison was asking prayer for an open door for the word, not necessarily for the prison door to open for him personally. God is not stifled by prison doors. Note how God answered prayer here. From prison, the word went forth powerfully. In fact, it's going forth here tonight. Page 103. It was in prison in Rome that Paul wrote what is called the prison epistles. Uh, Come down to the bowl to to speak the mystery of Christ. Here Paul further specifies what he means by the word. Specifically, he's talking about the message that now in Christ, Jew and Gentile are spiritual equals. That's the mystery. uh, That's the message that was previously a mystery. Is now the family of God. All believers are equals in Jesus Christ, whether Jew or Gentile. Um, Come under the under the uh, reference there. The good news of the gospel is that Christ died for all. All who believe can be forgiven and belong to God's forever family called the church. This family is made up of spiritual equals. The bottom of the the end of that paragraph, it was this message that got him into trouble, by the way. He says, for which I am also in chains. It was for this message that Paul was in prison. Recall what kind of set this whole thing off that landed him in prison is he was preaching to the, the Jews and he mentioned his ministry to the Gentiles. And when he said the word Gentiles, they went crazy. Paul ended up in prison, long process, and he's still in prison because of of that emphasis. Colossians 4.4, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. It's kind of encouraging, isn't it? Even Paul says, I need prayer that I would speak out as I ought to speak. What? Paul was such a bold guy. He struggled with this. He's asking prayer that he'd make the message known, manifest as I ought to speak. Not only was Paul asking for a specific prayer for an open door for the word, but also that he would make it manifest as he ought to speak. In other words, he was asking prayer that he might make the word clear without compromise. Uh, So note, I uh, emphasize these four points very consistently in what I call the knowledge of the truth. Uh, And there's connections to scripture with all of this very developed study in the New Testament. People need to know about sin, the knowledge of, of sin, which is, you know, the knowledge of the law. The law shows us uh, that we're sinners. I mean, why do you need to get right with God if you don't have a sin problem? So we start there. And then who Jesus is, the God-man. Of course, it's got to be personalized in salvation. As Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And then there's uh, what Jesus did. He died for our sins. Yeah, 
Who he is makes his life of infinite value. But what he did is he died for our sins. He paid the full price. And then he rose again, proving he is the Lord of life. And then we receive him by faith alone. In all my gospel ministry, all, my, all the tracks I put together, I always have these four points. Uh, this is what we want to get out, the message uh, of the gospel. Okay, Pedro 104. Notice what he says now. Uh, Colossians 4, 5. Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Our walk is our daily conduct or behavior. It's our lifestyle. Wisdom in the Bible is the application of godly principles. Those who outside refers to unbelievers who are not part of the family of God. So here's how we should respond. Uh, Next paragraph. Walking in wisdom means that we're careful and tactful with regard to unbelievers. We use our heads so that we might reach out and impact their lives for Christ. And then uh, come down to redeeming the time. The word redeem literally means to deliver by paying a price. It implies a cost. It's not easy to live this way. It's costly. Be willing to pay the price. Make the most of your time living sacrificially and taking advantage of every occasion to make an impact on the lost. So that's what your redeeming the time is all about. Making the most of it sacrificially. Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech always be with grace. And he's talking about towards the lost here. Seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. I still remember that one sermon I gave, and this dear little saintly lady on the way out said, you need a little more salt this morning. Yeah. Uh, You know, it was challenging, though, because I went home and thought about that, and I thought, how do you preach on a sin unto death in a salty way? (laughs) Very challenging. Anyway, uh, talking about reference to the unbelievers, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. Uh, how we live and how we relate to each other is important, but, but so is what we say. Watching our mouth is always important, and certainly so when we are speaking, uh, seeking to be a testimony to the lost. Next paragraph. Note that we are to be consistent. Let your speech always be with grace. Grace means unmerited favor. It's the idea of being gracious, uh, courteous. Winsome. In essence, it is being Christ-like. So let your speech be always with grace. That's how we, that's our attitude. That's our approach. Seasoned with salt. Salt does two things. It's a preservative and it adds flavor. The idea here is that our speech uh, should not be pungent or needlessly offensive. Certainly the gospel message is offensive to those rejecting it. But we should always seek to share the truth in love and do it in a manner that is tasteful. Top of page 105. Some people share the truth, but they smack people with it. I I may be guilty of that once in a while, perhaps. I mean, maybe the sweet saintly old lady was right. I don't know. But I think there may be a time uh, for that, such as when Jesus dealt with the hardened Pharisees in Matthew 23. But the rule of thumb for most of life is to approach everyone with a tone of grace and a measure of salt. Next paragraph. When something is properly seasoned with salt, it makes it appetizing and appealing. That is the goal, to speak in a pleasant way that is attractive. We don't want to speak in a way that drives people away or is needlessly offensive. Uh, Note the bold there, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. This is an interesting statement here. Uh, People are different. Uh, We cannot approach them with a one-size-fits-all mentality. 
We need to be sensitive and tactful so we can discern exactly how to respond to each one individually. We need to adapt appropriately so we can relate effectively to each one personally. You know we're fishers of men, right? You use the same bait for all kinds of fishing. You want to catch a certain kind of fish, you use a certain kind of bait. Uh, you have certain strategy. Uh, that way with people as well. Page 106, uh, under the uh, three uh, things there, continue earnestly in prayer, walk in wisdom, redeeming the time. The key to Christian living is Christ. Once we know who he is, our sufficiency in him, and our identity in him, then it's a matter of living it out in the relationships of our lives. Paul was a man who practiced what he preached as borne out in the concluding verses of Colossians. Paul hammers living out new man truth in relationships of life. And Paul, by example, was a people person. So note, uh, jump down to the next sentence there. <clears throat> this last section of the book has Paul presenting a, a verbal group photo of his associates. And he starts with Tychicus. So let's look at these guys just briefly. Um, Colossians 4, 7. Tychicus, is a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant of the, in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. You see, they didn't have email. They had to kind of rely on, rely on hey, what's happening with Paul. Tychus will tell you. In short, Tychus, uh, skip the, that paragraph there. In short, Tychus was a trusted co-worker that Paul felt comfortable with to uh, fulfill just about any responsibility with which he was entrusted. It says he's a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. Page 107. <clears throat> fellow servant uh, is more literally a fellow slave of the Lord's. Both Tychus and Paul were spiritual slaves of Christ. He was their heavenly master. And then he says, he will tell you all the news about me. The church of Colossae had sent Epaphras to Rome uh, to get firsthand information on how Paul was doing. But then Epaphras was also imprisoned. So Tychicus is now being sent from Rome to bring a missionary update on the Apostle Paul back to the church at Colossae. Colossians 4.8. I'm sending him to you for this purpose, that, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. Now note the last part of verse 8 in the older manuscripts reads, that you may know our circumstances and that he may comfort your hearts. That seems to make a little more sense. Okay, under the uh, reference there, Tychicus could comfort their hearts and encourage them that even though in prison, Paul was still being greatly used of God. Verse 9. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will make known to you all things which are happening here. So Onesimus, we're going to talk about Onesimus quite a bit tomorrow night uh, in Philemon, that little 25-verse book. But Onesimus was a runaway slave. His master was Philemon, who was one of the leaders in the Colossian church. Now, scholars believe it is likely that the church, in fact, met in his home. In the providence of God, this runaway slave ran into Paul somehow. And Paul led him to the Lord. Now think about this. This has God's providential fingerprints all over it. What a small world. It is estimated that Rome had about 500,000 living there at the time. Colossae was a small town of about 10,000 people living there. The church perhaps numbered 100 or 200 people. What are the odds that this runaway slave from this little town whose master is part of this little church would run into Paul in the huge city of Rome and be converted by him? What are the odds of that? It's a God thing. That's a God thing. Page 108. Notice he says here, and he's talking about uh, Onesimus. 
And he says here, verse, uh, is it the bold here on page 108, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. What a description. You see, Onesimus had been anything but faithful. And here Paul calls him faithful and beloved brother. He'd run off from his master, which in the Roman Empire was punishable by death. It's implied from the book of Philemon that he had very possibly stolen things from his master, Philemon. And so why would Paul be describing him as faithful? You think he said, you know, the unfaithful person, he's a brother now though, but he's unfaithful. No, no, no. Things had changed. He was now a beloved brother. He had come to the Lord. He was a changed man. Paul tells the family of God at Colossae that he is one of you. He too is now a Christian. When a person comes to faith in Christ, the past no longer is an issue. When Christ comes into the life, it's a whole new day. It's a whole new start. The old has passed away. All things have become new. Next uh, paragraph. Onesimus is a testimony to the grace of God to transform a life, to change a person from one who is unfaithful to one who is faithful. And part of the proof of his changed life is that now he is returning to his master, which was the right thing to do. That is Christianity in shoe leather. That's good fruit. You know, he could have said, you know what, Paul, uh, I'm, I'm saved now. I'm starting a whole new life, but I, I ain't never going back there. <laughs> he could have done. He could have done that, but he didn't. Good fruit here. Uh, notice what he says there. They will make known to you all things which are happening here. Uh, notice the transition uh, from just Tychicus bringing the news to Rome to also including Onesimus in the loop as well. Uh, this is Paul including Onesimus and subtly encouraging the body there to recognize him and include him. Verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. So uh, Aristarchus was a Jewish believer with a Greek name. Notice he says, my fellow prisoner greets you. Um, Various ideas here jump down to the middle of the page. Uh, Others think that the sense is that he volunteered to be in prison with Paul to assist him. An argument for this is, that in Philemon 23, it is uh, Epaphras and uh, Aristarchus, uh, who is called Paul's fellow prisoner. This perhaps suggests that these men voluntarily took turns of being in prison with Paul, but that they were at liberty to leave when they wanted. So the sense uh, may be that of being a voluntary prisoner, because in those days, Rome didn't provide the basic needs you had in prison. That was dependent upon friends, and maybe they were uh, uh, in that role. Whatever the case, the phrase fellow prisoner suggests that this man was loyal to the point of experiencing prison because of it, just as in the case of Paul. And with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, Mark's given name was John. His Latin name or his Latin surname was Mark. Next uh, paragraph. Mark was a companion of Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, but then Mark deserted, went home to Jerusalem. And when it came time for a second missionary journey, cousin Barnabas wanted to give him another chance and take him along. Paul absolutely refused. And this caused a rift between Paul and Barnabas. Um, But we see here, uh, things have changed again. And Paul's attitude uh, towards uh, Mark has changed. Um, Mark is a guy, an example of a guy who kind of blew it. But through maturity and, and through time, he came around. Bottom of the page, Mark is an example of a man who fails, but then makes a comeback. He's an example of a man with a second chance. He makes good on Uh, You don't want to write people off too quickly. Page 110. Barnabas. 
Barnabas is only mentioned in passing. Barnabas' real name was Joseph, but he was such a man of encouragement, the disciples dubbed him as Barnabas, which literally means a son of encouragement. And I've dubbed a few people that through the years, said, I'm going to call you Barnabas. Uh, There's such an encouragement. Uh, He says, about whom you received instructions, if he comes uh, to you, welcome him. We believe the nuance of this footnote phrase is that Paul had probably verbally given instructions to be passed along through Tychicus to the body at Colossae concerning John Mark. 4.11, and Jesus, who is called Justice, these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. Again, the name Jesus here is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew name Joshua. In and of itself, Joshua, Jesus, was a common name in the early days of the church. It literally means Yahweh is salvation. The name Jesus, therefore, literally means God's Savior. It is because the name Jesus was common that the Lord Jesus often has his name qualified in the New Testament. For example, he's called Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus, or his so-called full name, Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, let's go on to the next page, page uh, 111. Uh, This man, we really don't know much about him, and I say here at the top of the page, most of us fit into this category. We're not well-known, never will be well-known, but we too are fellow workers for the kingdom, and our lives matter to God. He says, uh, these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are the circumcision, who have proved to be a comfort to me. These three, namely uh, Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice, were the only converted Jews by Paul's sight who were fellow workers for the kingdom. Of the circumcision means that they were Jewish by background. These men were a comfort and encouragement to the Apostle Paul. We all need encouragement. And those who stick by us in the dark times, in the trying times of life, are a great comfort to us. We all need encouragement. We all need people who comfort us. And I note that about Paul. He was very human. He too needed encouragement. Skip that next paragraph. Here Paul mentions that these fellow workers were fellow workers for the kingdom of God. What does this mean? It is common for Christians to speak of the kingdom in a spiritual sense related to the here and now. But that really is not how the New Testament generally uses the word. It is true that there are different nuances related to the word kingdom in the scripture. But the New Testament very consistently is referring to the coming messianic kingdom when it speaks of the kingdom of God. And so uh, note uh, here on our overhead that uh, we're here in the church age. We've got the Old Testament. We're in the church age. Of course, after the rapture is going to be a a time of judgment on the world, followed by the second coming. Uh, We are the bride of Christ taken up at the rapture where our lives are going to be evaluated as far as rewards. And then we are returning as, uh, with Christ as the bride of Christ for, to rule with him in the kingdom. One thousand year phase that then merges into the eternal state. But the point here is uh, the kingdom, the whole of history is moving towards the kingdom. That's the goal. And so when he says here that uh, they are workers for the kingdom of God, in what sense are, are we working for the kingdom today? Are we bringing in the kingdom as some want to claim in certain theologies that, you know, it's up for us to bring the kingdom in? No. Uh, When we get it all set up and everything's just right, then Christ will come? No. It's not going to be all right. Christ comes and sets it up himself. Uh, We are working for the kingdom in the sense of winning souls who are going to be in the kingdom. That's really what, what it's all about. It's about souls. 
Okay, uh, bottom of the page. Paul's ministry involved a team effort. Paul was not a one-man show. He was a, a key leader, but there was a great supporting cast. It was a group effort. This is always the case in any healthy ministry. Page 112. The team was a motley uh, group of players who came from every stripe and background. They included all kinds of different people, all kinds of strengths and weaknesses. Uh, We note them there. Uh, They were a motley, great diversity crew, but what they all had in common was that they were fellow workers for the kingdom. I think that one of the greatest ways that God is glorified is in bringing together people that are diverse in almost every way radically changing them and putting them together as a loving family who are then working together for the common cause of the coming kingdom. Only God could do this. It's a testimony to his grace in our lives. Uh, Come down just above uh, the quote from uh, Colossians 4.12. Paul's ministry was a team effort. In recent years, many mission organizations have come to see the wisdom of a team strategy. Colossians 4.12. Epaphras who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. So uh, Epaphras, uh, mentioned three times in, in the Bible. Uh, Colossians 1, 7 suggests he may have been the founder of the church at Colossae. At the very least, he was one of the key teachers. He had traveled to Rome to find out how Paul was doing and to inform him of the situation of the church at Colossae. Uh, while there, he appears also to have been imprisoned with Paul, because Philemon 23 uh, refers to him as, uh, Paul refers to him as my fellow prisoner. Who is one of you? He was a member of the Colossian church. All right, page uh, 113. Again, he says he's a bond servant of Christ, more literally a slave of Christ. Uh, greets you. Of course, Epaphras would want to greet them because he was one of them. But notice what he's doing for them. Always laboring fervently for you in prayers. If there ever was a man of prayer, it evidently was him. A real prayer warrior was Epaphras. Uh, Laboring fervently is one Greek word. It's the Greek word agazinzabai, from which we get our English word agony. Uh, It's a word borrowed from athletic contests, such as when a wrestler would exert all his strength in trying to win a match. So the idea is strenuously agonizing in prayer, praying fervently. And what's he praying for? Come down to the bold there, that you may stand perfect. means complete. Immaturity is tossed to and fro with the winds of false doctrine, whereas maturity stands firm on the truth of Christ. And people become mature and strong in part because others are praying for them. And and I try to pray for most of you, if you uh, are regular here, almost every day. I take Mondays off. But uh, anyway, I try to pray for you regularly. Um, and complete in the will of God. The word complete is used in two ways, to be uh, fulfilled, filled completely, or to be fully convinced or to be persuaded. Uh, Both senses are in the New Testament. The latter would seem to fit more naturally here. So the sense then would be that Epaphras was praying that the Colossians would be fully convinced concerning the will of God as seen in the sufficiency of Christ. Page 114. That is the point of the book. Realize that Epaphras is the founding pastor at Colossae. He knows their situation. He is the one who has reported to Paul, and Paul wrote the book to to deal with the issues at hand. So Epaphras was praying that they would not in any way be wobbly concerning the completeness in Christ. Next paragraph. Looking at this through the lens of this letter, Epaphras would have been praying that they would hold fast to the sufficiency of Christ, realizing they don't need worldly philosophy in addition to Christ. Christ alone is sufficient. 
He would have been praying that they would reject legalism and stand fast in the liberty which they now have in Christ. He would have been praying that they would reject mysticism, asceticism, realizing these things do not add to what they already have in Christ. Page 115. And what do you know? We've got two minutes left. We're right on target. Page 115, uh, under the references there, the great issue that Paul is laboring to communicate is boiled down to Christ and our sufficiency in Him, our dependency on Him. This is huge. Since He is all-sufficient, God wants us to depend on Him for everything, all of the time. We're called to walk by faith. Skip the next line there. This is the great issue in life, learning to walk by faith, learning to lean on the all-sufficiency of Christ instead of looking to anything else. This is the God-honoring life. This is spiritual maturity, depending on Christ for all I need in the relationships of life. Whether it be forgiveness, forbearance, submission, love, obedience, etc. All I need, I find in the sufficiency of Christ. This is the heart of the letter of Colossians. When believers come to depend on Christ as being all-sufficient, they have reached maturity. Then they are fully convinced concerning the revealed will of God. Colossians 2.6, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord... So walk in him. They had received Christ by faith. Now the challenge was to consistently walk by faith, to trust him day by day, moment by moment, for all you need to live a godly life. It's one thing to know it intellectually, another thing to apply it. Last uh, paragraph there, just above 413. To stand mature and fully assured regarding the sufficiency of Christ is to have full confidence that this is the right stance and reflects the will of God in every regard. This is God's will to depend upon Christ for all that we need pertaining to Christian living. Christ is all and in all. If you get your mind and heart around that and stand there, you have arrived at maturity. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for the word and indeed help us to grow in grace and uh, grow in appreciation for the, the truth of who Jesus Christ is, his greatness but his uh, sufficiency for us in whatever we are struggling with in the relationships of life. Christ is sufficient. He is in all and he is our all. So Lord, again, help us to grow in grace as we continue to ponder these things and, and spend time in the word. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Hope to see you tomorrow night. One more night. We'll finish out Colossians and hopefully Philemon.